Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Faster my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. <laughs> Whew. Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash get more. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie Omero, Democratic Pollster. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So I am so excited that we get to have Cornell Belcher here. Cornell, we have been bumping into each other for a very long time around town um, as a fellow Democratic pollster. And we've gotten to work together on a project, which was really great fun. Um, over the last uh, couple of years. Um, and you're president of Brilliant Corners. You're also the author of a book uh, that came out right before the election, A Black Man in the White House. Um, and you've done all kinds of polling for all the Democratic groups. So can you just tell us a little bit briefly about how you got into this business and and the kinds of projects you've been working on? Oh, Lord, I, I got into this business because because like you, I'm a dork. And <laughs> <laughs> hey, now I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've always been fascinated uh, with political behavior and what makes people behave politically the way they behave. You know, I, I grew up in um, in the South, although ever since Governor Wilder was elected governor of uh, Virginia, they've been trying to push the South, Virginia out of the South. It's like it's not the South, but Virginia is still very much the South. Uh, but, you know, I grew up in, in coastal uh, Virginia, Norfolk, and uh, Norfolk Port City. So we have a very diverse population down there. And I grew up in a in a middle class neighborhood where I'd be, you know, we'd play baseball back when uh, American kids still played baseball. Uh, you know, we play baseball together all summer. You know, white friends, uh, black friends, a lot of Asian friends. We'd all get along you know, just marvelously on, on, on the field and playing. And then we, you know, sometimes we'd go back to one of our friends' homes and, you know, there sometimes would be Confederate flag there. And like, what is this all about? What's going on here? Right. Uh, I should have asked, can I, can I curse on your podcast? We have a clean rating, but <laughs> okay, I don't think, well, I'll try to I don't think like censors mouth. listen to it. Like if somebody <laughs> like we've never bleeped anybody out, you know, and it's a good exercise for me to not curse for an hour a week. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try so to curse, but you, no, you know how a long story. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll try to keep it clean. Although you okay. know how bad our mouths are. In, in that's politics. all right. I'm not. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so, so I was like, you know, what the heck's going on here? So I've always, you know, we'd always get along and we'd go back to the house and, you know, we'd, uh, you know, uh, Kool-Aid or whatever and, and, and hang out. But, but politically, 
you know, there were just stark differences, right? And so I, I was fascinated sort of why people behave the way they behave politically. And also growing up, I mean, I was the double down on my dorkiness. You know, I, you know, re, I read a lot of Du Bois, right? And, uh, uh, you know, Du Bois, W.E.B. Du Bois being one of the preeminent, uh, social scientists of, of, of American, of, of all time in America and certainly the preeminent African American social scientist, right? He, he, you know, Du Bois looked at the social sciences as a way of bettering society and for solving some of, of society's, you know, big problems. And, you know, I, I start my book off with a quote from Du Bois talking about, you know, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, right? And that was as true then as it is today. So that's what, so, you know, really, you know, tr wanting to use social science as a, as a way of improving and bettering, uh, our communities and our country, um, was something that I got into. And, you know, I also, important me, important for me was, was, uh, biography, um, uh, Gordon Parks biography and Gordon Parks biography, it was, was a choice of weapons, right? And, and basically this ideal that conscious people have to choose their weapons to do battle, uh, to bring about change and make world, the world a better place. You know, of course, Gordon Parks weapon was the arts and his camera. Uh, my choice of weapon was going to be, was going to be politics and the social sciences. Um, so that's really how I, I got in, I got into this and, and, um, you know, got out of college and, you know, if you were going to be in national politics, you, you, you come to Washington, you know, Hollywood for ugly people. And just like every other kid at that time, I got a job waiting tables and interning. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. Everybody, you had to intern back then too. Um, so, you know, but then you've also done work for, uh, the DNC and for, um, Democratic candidates. Tell us a little bit about some of your other. Well, your I move was, from your move from intern to author. I think you skipped a couple <laughs> steps. <laughs> well, I will. It's a good story. I I will say that that one of my first internships was with Stan Greenberg, right at uh, Greenberg Research. And at that time, Stan was the poster for the Hotshot Clinton, right, Bill Clinton, and uh, and one of the fondest memories I have of, and, I, and actually, I sort of started my pathway. You know, actually, just being copy. Uh, go get me coffee, uh, uh, intern, <laughs> um, to working my way up, uh, and learning the, and learning the business and learning data processing, et cetera. But one of the fun things, one of the interesting things that I used to have to do was back then, and Marge, you might remember this before the, you know, the, our, our, these young people who are spoiled with, with email and these super fast computers. Back then, it would take, you know, several hours. hours. To fax. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you're going to say? How long it take to fax everything? Oh. Right. It would take several hours just to run cross tabs, and then we had to bind them together. Oh, God, and the of course binding. We right. And we couldn't fax these to the White House. So from time to time, I got to get in a car. I'd, I'd take the banner books uh, and get in a car and and go over and drop the banner books off uh 
at the uh, at the west wing of the White House, <laughs> and, and in my imagination, just behind that door, Bill Clinton was waiting for me to drop these banner books off. <laughs> he might have been memorizing every last you know every last cell, right? Every last column versus row. I mean, the binding. Like there was so much of this like pressure to bind quickly and knowing where all the. UPS and FedEx drop off points are the last one. If you had to go to Dulles or if you go to the one on K Street and, <laughs> and then the faxing of the tracking in the morning would take hours, you know, and if it was a jam, then you had to go back and did, did you know some tricks to get this to fax to everybody quickly? And then the media consultant would call and he's like, why is my thing not here? I'm like, well, I, you're, you know, I remember like telling this guy off, like, you're fifth, you know, you're fifth in line. Sorry, you're fifth in line, buddy. And he's like, how do I get to the top of the line? I'm like, well, you got to sign the checks and then you can get to the top of the line. What do you want to tell you? Exactly. I cannot tell you how, how many times I missed the FedEx drop off, oh. you know, downtown and had to haul my butt out. Uh, yeah, God. I still remember the like the, the, like the stoplight that was the, you know, that we stopped at instead of rushing through. That was, you know, the thing that made us have to drive out to Dallas or whatever we had to do, <laughs> do that night. Oh, those, yeah. So it was, it was tough. I remember, I remember the, like the physical aspect of just getting things from A to B. It was <laughs> right. such a big part of the early junior jobs in that time. It's like, I don't think people understand at all. No, the young people don't understand now. They just hit a button and, 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 and email it wherever. Right, instantly. exactly. <laughs> right. Now and, their, their fear is emailing it to like their friend from high school by mistake or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and never mind the fact that it would take several hours to run cross tabs on these, these old, these old computers. Yeah. And now yeah. something that we do in a couple of seconds, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, and, and really begin to, uh, and there became a point where, you know, work for a couple of really great pollsters. I, you know, and I know, you know, Diane Feldman, I, I, yes. you know, I, 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 I love Diane. I learned so much about polling. Um, when I went to work with Diane for better or worse, Diane, uh, you taught me all I, I know about polling, so that might be for worse. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love I love Diane. Diane is very very nice. I've had a lot of good times with Diane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, okay. So you worked with Diane, and then did you and, go from there to the DNC? And, no, 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 no. They, oh Lord, there's a long process. I, you know, I became the first. Um, minority to ever be pollster for na either national party. And it was a long trek from, from, <laughs> from, from, from that, from, from that point to that point. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I, I went to work from, so I, you know, did polling for a while. Then, you know, um, Mary Beth Cahill, who was at Emily's, and then I, you know, went to work for, for Ron Lester, who was another African-American pollster, uh, became vice president of his organization for a brief time. And then Mary Beth Cahill, who was the executive director at Emily's list at the time was starting this, this thing, this crazy thing called women to vote, right? This crazy thing now, which is huge. Um, and asked me to come over and, uh, be the coordinator for the women vote program, right? <laughs> which was a quite an honor and, an, and a, you know, huge organization, quite an honor, really big job and, and really interesting because I would show up at meetings, you know, coordinated campaign meetings and they'd be, okay, we can start. We're just going to wait for the Emily's list, uh, rep here. And here was this, this young black guy <laughs> in the room, uh, you know, as they, as they, as a women vote coordinator for this, this, for this, for this women's organization. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's worth noting that, you know, I mean, I think obviously our party 
values diversity if, for sure. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm a Democrat. I'm assuming that's part of the, one of the reasons you're a Democrat. You know, there are still, you know, the Democratic Party as a establishment still gets some flack for the diversity in operatives, campaign managers, staff, consultants used, you know, whether it's gender diversity or racial and ethnic diversity. It's something that people, I think, have been calling some attention to. And I think there's been some progress. I'm going to I'm going to set that aside because you're poking me with a stick right now. So I'm going to set that aside for just a moment <laughs> okay. and finish the story that you that you want yes. that you want me to. Sorry, finish. my apologies. Uh, I'm going to ignore you poking me with a stick right now. Yeah, okay. And, and, and so I went from Emily's list and, you know, and Karen Johansson was political director at Emily's list. And then she was going over to DCCC to help Dick Gephardt become. God, I'm getting old. Help Dick Gephardt become uh, Speaker of the House. Right. Right. Uh, and Karen said, no, Karen you're coming Johansson over. is operative, you know, extraordinaire and mentor to 90 percent of Democratic operatives. In <laughs> right. right? And just so people know who, who we're talking <laughs> right. about. So, you know, so Karen and, and Donna Brazil, who's also, you know, operative extraordinaire and uh, a mentor to 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 thousands upon thousands also said, no, no, you're going to work at the DCCC. So I went to DCCC was special project director, sort of helping put together campaigns and doing special projects for campaigns all over the country. And it was so you, you, you get so I mean, really getting immersed in campaign politics in a way. So both having both sides of it, both the side of the the polling and research side, but really sort of, you know, implementation of that in the real world is also where I met David Pluff. And a lot of Washington for young people, for better or worse, we want to say it's, you know, how smart you are and how hard you work. And being smart and working hard is really important because you don't have opportunity without then. But also making the connections uh, in this town and working those connections are important because I don't end up at DCCC without Donna Brazil and Karen Johansson where I, where I meet David Pluff. And I don't and I don't end up on Obama campaign if I don't if I'm if I'm not meeting David Pluff. Right. Right. Um, but after. After the DCCC, I decided that um, these organizations are institutionally racist. And what I mean by that is that, for better or worse, they are not about, they are about, for me, to me, they were about protecting the status quo more so than they were about fundamentally shaking up things and giving an expanding voice to people at the margins, right? Um and it's funny that so I said I'm gonna go off on my own and and try to do my own thing, um, and then the DSC, which is Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, uh, you know Andy Grossman uh, was over there, and um, and he asked me to come over and work for the DSCC and working on the Senate campaigns. For those who don't know, sort of insider politics, it's another level. But I was lucky enough to get a sort of a consulting gig with the DSCC and I became senior political advisor there. So I was able to sort of help the DSCC, you know, with campaigns all across the country. But also I did this crazy thing that, that when I look back, it seems crazy. So a friend of mine, friend and I, we, there was Congressman Dixon had passed away out in California and there was going to be a special election. So I said, I had like a couple hundred bucks in my pocket. I was like, okay, let's go out to California and see if we can get a candidate. Uh, so we got to California and, you know, for a week or so, we're chasing down candidates and finally land a candidate. It was a businessman who had never run before. 
had zero name identification. Uh, but we started doing work for, for him. And lo, lo and behold, he went from in this very crowded race, you know, he went from, from back of the pack to coming in fourth. He didn't win. Uh, but he came in fourth place and, and I sort of just started working on campaigns and doing my political consultant gig from there and sort of building my reputation as, you know, sort of, and, and, and one thing for me, Margie, I, I never wanted to be, to have a big sort of huge firm working on, uh, right. you know, hundreds of races because I just wanted to work on, you know, stuff that I was interested in, right? I wanted to work for candidates and issues that I was interested in. So I always wanted a boutique firm where I did really sort of couture, specialized research, not cookie cutter for people I actually gave a damn about. Mm-hmm. And just yeah, I mean working. the Democratic side of consulting. I mean the Republican side, at least in polling. But I, I think I don't know if it's as true in the other disciplines. But in polling, the Republican side is pretty is fairly consolidated. There aren't as many firms. A lot of the work is you know in, in a handful of firms, and the Democratic side is a little bit more spread out. Um, there's been studies on this. I mean, it's I, I think there's it, part of it may have to do with the you know Republicans are more likely to use general consultants. I mean, there's a whole separate conversation about the structure of political consulting businesses and like how they run as businesses. That's, you know, they're not really scalable. Like all that stuff is like its own separate, interesting conversation. Right. And and by the way, I'm going to circle around back to a piece of this in, in, a, in a moment. And well, and, you know, fast forward, you know, I'm in, you know, build a name for myself, reputation for myself. And I fast forward, I'm I get called to a dinner with the infamous colored girls, which again brings us back to people that you know in in Washington, which of course you know Donna Brazil and Mignon Moore and Yolanda Caraway and Reverend Daltrey, um, and um, and Tina Flonoy. So you know these and who've been written about extensively in Washington Post covered extensively, but these you know these these African American women. Uh, you know, of real power and influence in, in Washington. And they were interviewing people who were, you know, going to run for certain things. And they, they, and they invited me and I was honored because they didn't invite a lot of guys. They invited mm-hmm. me to a dinner <laughs> with, with Howard Dean, you know, mm-hmm. with Governor Dean and Governor Dean and I immediately hit it off. And, <laughs> uh, and to a certain extent, we were both like outsiders looking in at the establishment wanting to shake it up. Uh, so we both immediately hit it off. And when B- Governor Dean, of course, be- he became chairman, you know, he tapped me to become, uh, his poster at, at, at the party and where, where I said, you know, we're going to go in a different direction and we're going to try to really try to compete in different places and, and build body of research to try to help us compete. And what Governor Dean says is that, you know, our research was the blueprint for the 50 state strategy, which you will remember initially was much maligned by establishment yep. Democrats yep. until it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I do remember that. I mean, it's, I mean, every candidate for chair was, you know, saying something along those lines. So That's it's right. now considered like a completely accepted thing. I remember seeing a quote from Howard Dean about you in wherever, and he was trying to show how he was shaking it up. And he's like, 
my pollster is 37 years old or whatever, whatever old you were at the time. <laughs> and I like told somebody who was like, I told somebody who had like had a name with them. I'm like, FYI, if he really wants to shake it up, I'm three years younger than Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> Just FYI. <laughs> but anyway, he did it. Nothing went for it. So nothing happened from it. So. <laughs> and, and, and I will, I will, I will, I will mention this that we went on to have the most successful chairmanship in modern history when you look at sort of how how well Demo- Democrats did. And, you know, that in a sort of connecting the dots from, from my previous, you know, uh, work, you know, both meeting uh, Pluff, but also becoming sort of meeting and working with Gibbs, Robert Gibbs, who, of course, became the first press secretary for the president, but also getting the opportunity to, to to meet the president before he was president, you know, through my work at the DSC. And I'll tell you another quick sort of story, which which is which is sort of funny for Washington. But I remember sitting in a DSCC political department meeting one day and we were talking about the primary coming up in Illinois and candidates just running. And one of sort of one of the folks mentioned there is this, there's this state senator by the name of Brock Obama who's running. And I was like, we don't have to worry about him winning the Senate seat. (laughs) 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 And lo and behold, again, it's someone who's for, for always been upsetting uh conventional wisdom he went on to become a win that primary and and become our nominee and and i and i sort of got to know him over over years before he before he ran and and i was honored that that him and his team when they were thinking about running uh you know tapped me to, to be a part of those conversations from the very beginning uh and i gotta tell you and you know this i mean the, you know, the Presidential elections are sort of Super Bowls for us political dorks, right? And the opportunity to be a part of that campaign and do things differently and build a movement. And the president, you know, then the senator talked about how we had to build a movement, right? And for me, that was that was really powerful because movements are spiritual. Movements are cultural. You know, movements are social. They're bigger than politics. And I, and I like to think in 2008, what we built was something a lot more powerful and impactful than just uh partisan politics right and they're also hard to pull in you know as a something you want to create or predict i mean you can't really ask people like how how would you feel about a movement that you know <laughs> talked about this right. people would, you know you're not going to get a real honest answer people can't really tell you what it's like to be swept up in a movement and it's just much like um trump and his supporters i mean that's not something you could have asked people about in advance even knowing about even people knowing Trump, it's hard to really, you know, predict how that's going to go. Well, that that's sort of, you know, what you what you point at is the what you know what I refer to as the art and science uh, of polling, right? And I have a firm belief that that you can't be a really good pollster if if you're not good at the art of polling. Uh, you know, there there you know a lot of our our young people graduate from college and and they have the mathematical background, the stat background to know. Uh, from a methodological standpoint, you know, how things should be, but it's different than, than the art of polling, right? And understanding that, um, you know, one of the understanding that, for example, you know, uh, Marion Barry couldn't be elected mayor of Washington DC again after the, the, the incident in the hotel room, unless you understood what redemption meant 
and what Marion Barry had meant to Ward 7 and 8 in the Washington, D.C., these traditional, older, more established African-American wards. Yeah, I worked with a client who was a candidate running in an area where the person he was replacing had, you know, resigned in disgrace. And there was a massive scandal. And it was a predominantly African-American city council race. And I said, well, what do you say at the doors? How do you talk about it? It's like, so you couldn't escape this massive scandal that had just swept the whole county. <laughs> and he said, well, I say, I'm praying for them. And now we have to do F. And so we split sampled that. Uh, you know, it wasn't my language. That's not what I, you know, I wouldn't have come up with that. And it was far and away the best thing to say and far and away <laughs> split sample. And that's just using the candidate's own, you know, words about being in touch of what, you know, what it means when a, you had a community with like the, a really, really big political scandal that was like really a big black eye on the, you know, political establishment. But it right. was very similar to Marion Barry. And right. And it's the art of it. I mean, the art of it says that that, you know, and why so much of the polling early on polling was 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 off in 2008, especially going into primaries was, you know, the you know, we build these very likely voting models and that that's what they are. They are say this is what happens in history and 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 historically this is the pattern. Right. And so that's the and that pattern is going to continue repeating itself until it doesn't. Right. Until you, in fact, have a a candidate like Barack Obama who can engage millennials in a way that I would argue, you know, we've never seen in decades. And so your likely voting models are are wrong. Um, but understanding that and allowing for that to sort of happen in your research, um, I think is sort of the difference between the under the art and the science of of polling. And I think <clears throat> What we what we had to do for the Obama campaign was change the face of the electorate, right? And we, and the president talked about that. You know, then senator talked about that. You know, we had to make the changes, the demographic changes that were happening in our country, realized in our electorate. And when you look at uh, 2008 and you look at 2012. You know, and I talk about this in my book, uh, A Black Man in the White House, which everyone should pick up. The breakthrough, I mean, there wasn't, it was a historic breakthrough, but it wasn't the historic breakthrough that, and that, that many wanted to believe it was, right? You know this just as well as I do. I mean, Democrats have not won white voters since LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act, right? And we've historically done well and can compete at the national level when we garner roughly 46% of them, right? Um, you know, Carter, uh, at, at the, at the height of the Republican sort of brands low, uh, after, after Watergate, you know, Carter got what 46% of them and was able, able to win. Um, Barack Obama didn't get 46% of the white vote. He got the same percentage of the white vote overall as John Kerry did when John Kerry lost to to, to George Bush, right? The breakthrough wasn't that we somehow changed the, the racial voting patterns in America. The breakthrough was that we expanded the electorate with the changing face of America, right? Mm -hmm. the, the breakthrough was that, in fact, for the first time, you can have someone get a lot less than 46% of the white vote and win a majority. Right. And then in 2012, uh, get even lesser percentage of the white vote and win a back to back majority because of us realizing the changing face of America. And by the way, 
you know, and you have to be careful about uh, talking about it because Margie, Lord knows I'm always called racist whenever I talk about race, right? That's, that's part of the slippery slope. But for the first time in American history, the, the candidate who was the overwhelming choice for white voters, that did not become president of the United States. Um, and that is a significant thing in our country. And demographically, when you look at America, we are not going to get whiter over the next decade or two, right? We're at a, we're at a tipping point. And what I argue is that, is that for the first time, what the Obama coalition really represented was a historical challenge to white political supremacy in this country. And we should understand that there was going to be a backlash to that, right? And that's not to sort of cast negative or, or, or point fingers and, and put a value judgment on that, but just from a, just from someone who, <laughs> who understands sort of history and social science, there's always going to be a backlash, right? right. Uh, so there, so there was a backlash to that, and I, and I, and I detail that backlash and actually statistically, uh, track that backlash, because although we didn't, talk a lot about race in the Obama campaign, you know, I did start doing polling around how uh, racial attitudes would, would, would impact uh, the campaign. And, and what I saw was, you know, there was a lot of hope that we'd become post-racial after, after the election of Obama. Early on, there was talk, but um, we didn't. And quite the opposite happened. We did have a backlash. We saw over the course of Obama's presidency and, and my data and others, Sort of researchers data actually the racial aversion rising right as as this as many felt a real threat to the, the way of life when people feel threatened and they feel anxious about changes that are happening in their country i don't want to beat up on those people right, right. and i don't right i don't want to point finger at those people but i think right. we need to have a conversation about their about that anxiousness and find a way to inoculate it Right. I mean, this is the this is the question that obviously, you know, folks on the left, I mean, lots of people are struggling with and trying to figure out what we do. I mean, for one, I feel humble about how I did not I did not think we would be in a situation where we would have a president and president supporters who are so openly encouraging. I mean, this is far beyond footsie with white supremacists, right? I mean, this is just like full-throated making out, right? This is, and with white supremacists and, you know, allowing this to really, you know, and how easily it could be scared up and kicked up into this, you know, thing that is now like, you know, something that you have Republicans expressing some support for in polls in a variety of ways, depending on how you ask it. And I did not think we would be able to get there. You know, I thought that it was obviously it's no surprise to me that people say things that express some racial anxiety, right? That's obviously not a surprise. Anyone who moderates focus groups on politics, you know, is it's not a surprise to them. But um, but the way the language and the way that people feel comfortable talking now is really astonishing to me. Are you surprised by that? Is that something that surprises you where you, or you say that this is, you know, pe- people just were not speaking this way as much in public and now they feel they can or, but they always wanted to like, what do you, what do you think is behind this change? Much of the fear leadership matters. Right. And I, you know, right after the, shortly after election, I, I did a post-election poll uh, for the congressional black caucus. And, um, um, 
you know, uh, looking at sort of African Americans, sort of their reaction and 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 sort of their thoughts about ways forward, and and you know, part of the fear, um, and I've been picking this up in focus groups ever since. Part of the fear here is that that Trump sanitizes it, right? Uh, that Trump makes it okay to have these. Um, these xenophobic, sort of nationalistic, racist uh, viewpoints, right? You know, this in a way that 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 other presidents had. And, you know, you may have your 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 quarrels with with George Bush and even quarrels with Ronald Reagan, but there wasn't this sense that that some of this animosity would be okay, right, and be defended. You know, and it is and it's stunning even not to just it's stunning to even Republicans, uh, you know, when when you when you look at their reaction to Charlottesville and the president's comments on Charlottesville that, you know, this isn't OK. Right. To to say that, you know, that that people marching with Nazi and flags and and doing the Nazi. Salute right. And, I mean, it's particularly evil. Okay. Right. And like obvious, like <laughs> right. any any like any president of any party should be able to figure out what to say about it. I mean, it's like, it's ridiculous, but it's not just that Trump is bad on this. Cause obviously this shouldn't be surprised. Anybody who's watched him, not just recently, but over the years, but how he started like, his campaign, <laughs> how he started his campaign and, you know, the central park, you know, jogger, I mean, all of that. Right. Um, but in his family history, et cetera, et cetera, but it's, you know, it's the, it's how, easily people a group of people said okay yeah no i'm i'm ready i'm down for this now like i'm you know me too sign me up for this kind of language and that to me is what i find humbling i mean obviously I, you know people who say well i wish you wouldn't say those things you know but i voted for him anyway like that's to me it, you know that's a separate kind of issue but the the people you know the large number of people who say yes i'm ready you know to kind of use this really extreme language or you know, the poll that, that showed like a, almost half of Republicans said that maybe the white nationalist protesters had a point, you know, right after Charlottesville. I mean, those numbers are, you know, well, 62, well, 62 percent of Republicans in the post poll approved of what of prompts of, of Trump's yeah. uh, performance after after Charlottesville. And that yeah. really sort of shows you. The, div the, the divide here, right? Uh, you know, happily, you know, fifty five percent of independents disapproved, but but you you do have, and and this is where it gets sort of controversial and it makes people uncomfortable. But I, quite frankly, I think people need to be made uncomfortable. But I think when you look at what Trump is doing, he is making, he is look. I, I we are a tribal America. We as tribal as 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 any as any country. Um. And what is fairly clear is that, um, and I think a, a, a lot of Republicans look, look back at the, at the Republicans autopsy, right? Report and look at what things that Jeb Bush were saying is that long term, you know, the Republican party increasingly being simply the party of, of a segment of white voters long term, long term is not viable. Uh, but you increasingly, you increasingly see this and, and what, the challenge for America is because we are not going to grow wider as a country. We're 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 going to do what what I think no democracy see no Western democracy has seen in modern times. We're going to go from a majority white to a majority other country.
right? And it is going to challenge how it's going to challenge our beliefs and our faith and our commitment to the ideals of democracy, right? Is democracy about group power? Is it fine to have democracy as long as one group's in power? But what happens to our democratic ideals when, when, when you have to share power or Lord help us, the majority changes, right? Do we see what's happening in some of these states, you know, go no further than North Carolina, a couple of states down from us here in, in Washington, where you have the state legislative body legislating things in a way where the courts say you are discriminating, right? You are intentionally trying to lessen the power the political power of people of color. You have them stripping away the governor's powers. You know, uh, you have all these things that are not normal for democracy beginning to happen. You know, I agree that this is just a massive, you know, is a massive political challenge we're all grappling with every day. I mean, maybe you're optimistic that the political climate is going to change because <laughs> our our political makeup and demographic makeup is going to change. And, you know, we may go through these like flare ups where things sound bad, but in the long run, things are going to move in the right. I mean, you're not actually sounding positive, but that's maybe I, one way to interpret we, what you're saying. We want uh, to be. Well, no, I, I'm 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 I know we're supposed to always be optimistic, but I but I'm not very optimistic. No, this right. Uh, <laughs> you don't I'm have to be op- optimistic. I mean, it's it's tough to see how we get out of where we are right now. I mean, the the, the climate is very very bad, and we have party to lines, solve racial this. lines. It's terrible. Yes. But we have, but it's, but it's confronting us, right? This is look, the, this is the original sin of America, right? And we've been struggling with this ghost for, for several hundred years. But, but we have to solve for it now because America, because of the demographic shifts and, 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 and we have to solve for it. We know the millennials, bless their souls. They are the generation where, where we see this transformation of America to a, to majority minority country. Mm-hmm. And so they, so we, so they certainly can't kick the can down the road any, any further on this. And, and I don't, and I think and this is where I come after progressives because I'm so tired of so many of my progressive, you know, friends and colleagues who have even, who have complete blinders on, on the issues of race and racism, right? I actually rather talk to a, to a Southern conservative Republican about race than a Northeastern liberal about race because mm-hmm. it's a Republican, because a Republican get, they re, they get race. In fact, they get it so much. They built the most successful political strategy in our time around it called the Southern strategy, right? Right. They get the ideals of tribal and, and, and race and, and progressives want to pretend and put blinders on about it. Yeah. Um, and, and here's the issue. So for me, when Donald Trump stands in front of his his audience and his campaigns, which he did many times, and says, I'm going to give you back your country, Margie, Donald Trump's having a conversation about race, right? right? Democrats say, I'm going to wait, raise the minimum wage. That is not a conversation about race. That is a complete disconnect, right? They are playing chess we are playing checkers. Yeah. I okay. Simply, so I hear, I, I totally hear that. Like I but hear. But let me make this they, last point. Let me okay, yeah. last. Let me like last point is that I don't know what exactly that conversation should be, but you and I both know he or she who defines the rate, the, the defines the the problem, who defines the, the debate, wins the debate, right? So we got we have to have an alternative conversation about race that that, that gives people somewhere else to go other than. I got to take my country back. Right. 
Right. I mean, here's the thing, right? So there's a couple of things. One, I mean, it, Trump did not, I mean, I think there are a lot of Republicans who want to believe that this is just an anomaly. Like, how did this happen? You know, Donald Trump came and, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, Republicans are talking about race in this way that's so egregious when he wasn't the first person to say, you know, take our country back, right? He wasn't the first person, to, you know, Sarah Palin was talking about real America. That's the same kind of thing, right? Um, you know, the Mitt Romney ran an ad about the Obama welfare voucher. I, I can't remember the detail, but something about like I had a welfare, like misleading line in an ad that was seemed as, you know, as very much trying to evoke these, you know, racial panic that voters have. Right. And now it seems very mild compared to Trump. But I mean, this is not the first time that anybody's used some of these, you know, stuff in recent elections. Um, so, you know, that's the first thing. Right. And the second thing is, when we tried to, when you see Democrats calling Trump out for, you know, the language that he used, you know, what you saw from all the Democratic establishment or you saw from the media coverage about trying to call Trump out for all of this, you know, crazy talk, it didn't move anything. And there were academic studies that showed that when you would call people, call Trump out on his racist language, it kept people exactly the same. And I'm sure there, you know, there's a similar pattern or likely a similar pattern with gender as well. That's saying like, this is racist language, you know, makes people who aren't sure how they feel about Trump's policies or they will always vote a Republican or whatever say, hey, are you calling me a racist? I really resent that. And I don't know if how that moves the ball forward, but yet you can't let these things go unchecked. So I don't know where that leaves us with a path. I don't know what your what your thoughts are. It, it is an alternative, right? It's got to be an alternative conversation. Again, I would argue that we've seated the we've seated that conversation almost completely to Donald Trump, and it's not enough to say, okay, that's racist, right? We have to have an alternative conversation about 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 America and his and, and, and his and his racial future, right? And what is that alternative com what is that alternative conversation looks like? I don't know exactly, but I think it probably looks something like, you know. And I don't, and, and look, tribalism is going to be with us, but can you, def, but can you redirect it, right? Is there a big we as opposed to a small we? Is there a conversation that in America that you can have that, that it says, you look, you know, take a state like Georgia, for example, the, the, I think the majority of, of the young people in, uh, in elementary grade school in Georgia right now are children of color. This means America losing the future, right? They are not other kids. They're our kids. This is not about uh, one group. This is about sort of how we as America compete more broadly in the in, in a change in, in the global in the global environment. I'm not. That's not exact language, but I think there's some there there in sort of redirecting the conver redirecting the conversation. The other point I'll make about this is is this that we spend a lot. We I think we spend way too much time talking about Trump and his vote. Right? Trump is a president with less than a plurality of the vote. Trump is a president that. Uh, when you look at battleground state after battleground state, it's not like he got to a majority. He didn't match even even um, Barack Obama's. You know, what did he get in Pennsylvania? He got 48 percent. What did he get in, you know, in Michigan? He got 47 percent. What did he get in Florida? He got 49 percent. He is not a majority president. Right. So I'm not about us going after Trump supporters. What I am going interested in is these, you know, six or seven percent of of Latino um uh millennials who broke third party in 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 Florida right right uh that you know this 6 or 7 or 8% of african american millennials who broke third party in michigan right 
that to me is how we cobble back our majority coalition, not doubling down or trying to go after 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 Trump supporters. However, should we be having a conversation with Trump supporters? Absolutely, we should, because we have to or this country is going to tear itself apart. So we are at a critical tipping point in this country where we have to fix this and not kick it down the, the, the can down the road anymore or the future belongs to China. Yeah. Okay. So maybe n- no to the optimism then. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm in the same. I, I mean, you know, I, I'm totally with you. I'm totally tracking with you in terms of, uh, you know, the challenges that we face. Um, do you have any, uh, do you have any advice? We have a lot of grad students who listen to our show, people early in their career. Do you have any advice? Um, words of wisdom or, you know, <laughs> words of encouragement or discouragement for folks? Yes, absolutely. Look, you know, the world is yours to define, right? And all these problems that we've been talking about, you know, I, to say I'm, I'm not optimistic is actually kind of missing it. I, I just, I just understand the challenge and the historical right. bigness, hugeness pragmatic, of this, pragmatic. of this, of yeah. this challenge, right? But they, but, you know, the young young people, you have to solve for it, right? What generation after generation of Americans have failed to do and have kicked the can down the road, the buck stops with you. Either your generation, you you're smart enough, you're you're your best trained, best educated generation of Americans, most connected generation of Americans. I believe in American exceptionalism, right? I believe that this young generation of Americans, they can solve for this. Because they have to, or they may be the last generation of America. Okay. Well, on that note, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. This has really been great. Uh, Cornell, I've really, it's been such a treat. I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, how can people find you uh, on Twitter, find your book? How can folks? Uh, on Twitter, at, I'm at Cornell Belcher, simply Cornell Belcher. And my, and my, my millennials who work for me in office, I got to do more social media. So I, I now have a, Instagram, which I, so you have to Cornell underscore Belcher on Instagram. And you can always hit me on my, find me on my Brilliant Corners, uh, research website, uh, where I actually have a lot, some, some of this research as well. Please go to Amazon, uh, and get my, pick up my book. And if your local bookstore doesn't, you know, they don't have it, demand that they stock the shelves with a, a, a black man in, in the White House, which I actually thinking about doing a, Doing a, adding another chapter on to it right now because a lot of people are asking me about sort of the challenges right now and 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 I should, probably should tack on another chapter uh, to it soon. But go pick up. The oh, book. that'd be great. I think it's, a great, it's a great read. If you want to understand how we got to where we are today and the history of it, I think it's a great read. Great. Well, folks, definitely do that. And Cornell, thank you so much. I'm glad we got this uh, to happen today, and um, and really look forward to hearing everyone's feedback on our conversation. I am honored. Thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) Take care. Bye. (laughs) Bye.